Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. I'm also the author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and my goal is to decode exactly how to design a life that really matters, because if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. If you're new to the show, take a deep breath. Almost everything is trivial. Only a few things are essential, and that's what this show is all about. My job is to interview, get deep really with authors, entrepreneurs, psychologists, and everyday people to help explore what's essential so that we can eliminate everything else. Through a process of listening, unpacking, and going deep with each guest, we turn each episode into practical advice for intentionally planning and living in order to move forward. If you enjoy this podcast, if it means something to you, then why not suggest it to family and friends and even earn a reward? For the month of December, we're launching a special referral program that both you and your friends, colleagues, co-workers, and more will benefit from. They have a chance to get introduced to the What's Essential podcast, and you can qualify for some exclusive referral rewards as a thank you for sharing it. All the details can be found in the What's Essential podcast description. I am so excited to introduce this episode. It's with Linda and Drew Scott. Drew Scott is an HGTV superstar, one of the identical twins in the Property Brothers. Together, Linda and Drew are hosts of the At Home podcast, as well as many other really interesting projects out there. This conversation is special because you're going to see real time two people getting honest about where they've come from, where they are now, and their evolving vision of the future. Without further ado, let's get to the episode. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, it's How nice. are you doing? You have a very soothing voice. I think this is a great way for us to spend our day. It'll get us relaxed. <laughs> I tried putting on a British accent. It didn't help me because my accents aren't the best. <laughs> I want to hear your British accent. It depends what you want me to sound like. Um, I could do more of a Queen Cockney. I could do a, I do a hybrid. <laughs> I don't mean to knock a man, you know, uh, but I didn't know what that accent was. Nobody does. Not even me. Linda, do you do an accent? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was all right. That was, that was, was it all right? That was good. When I, when I try to sound like an American... I just sound like Bill Clinton. Oh, that, that was like Bill Clinton from the, the Wild Wild West. That was really good. That's it. I can't do anything else. I like this. I want to go back to the beginning. I want you to give me like two minutes on parents. Uh, so uh, starting on my side, um, my growing up, mom and dad, we lived and grew up in a town outside of Vancouver, Maple Ridge, up in Canada. Get our mornings with dad our evenings with mom and dad and our weekends together. And we grew up in a ranch. And so that was big, uh, important thing for them to have us really integrated in that farm and ranch life where we would have, we'd be out on our horses all day, taking care of the horses. We, we learned a, a hard day's work through them on the ranch. And um, I think it really d- did shape us. The life lessons that they gave us as well really shaped us. They encouraged us to go into whatever we were passionate about and they supported us through and through, which really meant a lot. There was no being lazy. Our, I mean, our dad's one of the hardest workers. We 
we've ever met. He just, no complaining. He just gets out there and he just does it. And I do remember as a kid, actually, it's funny. There are all the jobs we would have to, every year we would have to repaint. My, my dad had fences, these three board white fences all around the entire acreage, around all the different individuals. Um, yeah, horse fences, in fact. Yeah, horse, horse fences. And it's all, the, the rings had different fences around. So there were fencing everywhere. But my dad was always, we always joke that we're Scottish, so we're cheap. So, uh, but the thing is, we always, my dad would always, he would get a cheaper paint. And so we would have to repaint it. would It would fall, it would flake off every year. We'd have to redo it. I'm like, dad, let's just do a bit more quality work. And then we wouldn't have to redo this every year. I was always trying to find ways around the ranch to get out of doing what I thought was unessential um, labor around the ranch. I was always trying to find more effective ways. For example, picking up rocks. My dad would have us as kids collect these little buckets, small buckets that would we would put rocks in. This is a five-acre parcel, and we would be constantly picking up rocks all the time. And so we finally protested, and we said, we're not doing this unless you can pay us a nickel a bucket. And he said, sure, because it was still a heck of a lot cheaper than him having to pay what he would have to pay to get guys to come in. And then we realized we'd go for – so we went for 10 cents. Then we went up to a quarter a bucket. And uh, I remember saying to my dad, why don't we just – why don't you pay $200 and get one of those big rakes that come behind your truck, and then it will pull all the rocks up and save us all this hassle. And he's like, no, no, that's what you guys are here for. It's fine. <laughs> so that was, I was always trying to find a more effective and a more efficient way to do anything, even as a kid. Yeah, that is very interesting. I, I want to come back to it. But it sounds to me like your dad wasn't – you know, like it wasn't about the rocks. Mm. You know, in reality, I feel it kind of was. But uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, our parents actually, what I really love looking back now as an adult is I could see when our, my parents were trying to um, have us do things that was a life lesson. And then Linda, tell me about your parents. Yeah, so they grew up in Vietnam and came to Canada in 77, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I grew up in, in Ontario. Where in Ontario? Uh, in Toronto and Mississauga. Yeah. I know, I know Mississauga. I know Toronto. I actually sp- lived there for two years. It was, uh, it was a really thrilling part of uh, my, my life as I'd left England and suddenly it was on the other side of the world and just, just uh, getting to know people. So, and so anyway, so you came from Vietnam, you're in Toronto as kids, they would often tell us stories of how they got to Toronto. And that was through um, a series of boats. Um, they were part of the, the boat people that uh, came out of Vietnam. And uh, like my, my sister, second eldest sister, was born in Malaysia on a Red Cross camp, which I think is just so crazy. Amazing. And, yeah. And it's, it's, it's wild what, what can happen in, you know, in dire times. Um, but yeah, they, they made it over to Ontario and that's where we grew up. And as kids, I would remember my parents as being like serial entrepreneurs. My dad was always running around starting businesses and like what, what businesses, um, like wedding and entertainment business, electronics, electronics. Um, we had a DVD or a movie rental store. And as soon as we were old enough, so eight, or eight or 10, <laughs> we would work with them. So we would spend our weekends at the stores and we would, we would help uh, move all of the laser discs and set up the, the microphones and the, the karaoke sound system for weddings. Um, so as much as I didn't enjoy it as a kid, when I think back, I, you know, I, I feel lucky that we were a part of that experience. 
Also, um, I feel lucky that your parents let let you wait until eight years old to start yeah, working. I you know, started that's working at seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that really. There's such a visual in my mind of the boldness of your parents to even go. I'm doing this. We're going to America against all odds. You know, we're going to figure out how to do this. We're going to get get on those boats. We're going to arrive. Well, I'm, I'm telling, I'm making stuff up here, but it, but it would be consistent with the other stories of that generation. Uh, to start with nothing and just, just make this happen. Yeah, definitely. And the stories are just so overwhelming. And, and whenever I think about it, it does remind me how lucky we are to even contemplate what am I going to do today? Because we have that choice. Whereas people who have gone through that experience, um, they didn't have the choice to think, you know, what are my passions that I'm going to live out? Their decisions were based on survival. And, and, and so you're, you're having these two very different experiences at this point uh, in your lives. When did you two meet? We met 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago mm-hmm. um, in Toronto. So it was the first season of our show, Property Brothers. And we were filming in Toronto. Um, the show had started airing, but it hadn't taken off yet. And we were asked, Jonathan and I were asked to be the celebrity models at this Fashion Week event. Our wardrobe sponsor was uh, asking us to come and walk the runway for them. And so um, we said, sure, you know, maybe it's a good opportunity, press, whatnot. And uh, anyway, so at this event, I noticed this girl backstage and she was stunning, but I noticed her personality is what was really pulling me towards her. She was talking with some people and she just had this energy around her that was just this fun loving personality. And so I wanted to get to know her. I didn't get to know her. Instead, I saw Linda and I started chatting to no. <laughs> no, uh, but yeah, in in the beginning there, it was it was Linda that I saw. There was there's nobody else. I mean that she caught my eye right away and I made an excuse to come over and talk and bond without, you know, hitting on her. I was of this state of mind. Nobody wants to be hit on, but I wanted to create a conversation with her. And so I my in was just she was holding a bottle of water, and so I just said, Hey, where'd you get the water? And uh, she quickly came back with, where'd you get the pizza that I was holding? And, uh, and we just kind of noticed we had the same sort of similar personality, character, uh, you know, humor. And we hit it off and we started chatting. And, you know, I think we, our, our relationship grew pretty fast because we connected on a different level. Um, and she ended up being my tour guide of Toronto, showing me a few <laughs> cool spots to go. And-, and then, okay, so I know I'm going to like jump fast here, but when did you get married? Two years ago. Mm-hmm. Two years ago already. Two years ago, May the 4th. We are nerdy Star Wars peeps. Um, and it was in Italy. And so uh, for us, you know, we wanted to go, we wanted a destination wedding. We wanted to go somewhere we could actually spend a week with family and friends because the last 10 years since we met, our lives have been extremely busy on the road. We, we were in a different city filming every few months. We're on a plane every couple of days for whether it's press or whatever it might be. And so we don't get to see a lot of our friends and some of our family as regularly as we would want to. And then just to explain this to me now, you go from the ranch to, you said, first in theater. I'm not sure I would put those two things together naturally. So is that because your dad worked in movies and that's why, why how did you how did you make the jump from horses to theater and what was the first show too yeah so when we you know 
while we were at the ranch growing up on the ranch, we were going to, you know, our, our school had a good theater program. And even before we were in theater, Jonathan and I, we had so much energy. We were at home. We were always, you know, we were kind of making our own little songs, making our own little plays, trying to entertain our parents, family, friends, and anybody who would even look at us. We were trying to entertain mm-hmm. them. We had a ton of energy. I'm sure we were annoying as hell to my parents. And so, uh, yeah, they at one point they had said to us, you know, they're trying to look for a way that we could have an outlet for all of our energy. And the local Parks and Rec, they were doing a course on how to become a clown. So you could actually be paid to entertain at birthday parties and such. And so we love this idea. So we went, we learned to juggle. We learned to blow up balloon animals and paint faces. And How old were you when you did that? So Jonathan and I actually started our first business at seven. And then actually we started clowning at eight. So it was all around so that same time. What was the first time. business if you did, did clowning at eight? Yeah. So the first business was actually an arts and craft kind of a thing. It was making these decorative hangers. So we would take a wire hanger. Then we would weave a nylon around it and create a little rosette. And it was just these pretty hangers. And we saw them. We were at some sort of an, um, I don't know, it was an art show or craft show or something. And we saw that. And Jonathan and I looked at each other and we're like, Mm -hmm. we could do this. We were always looking for some way to make money, some way to be able to afford to get the things we wanted to get. What did you want to get? At that age, what we wanted, our parents had taken us to Scotland when we were five years old. And our dad got us hooked on our Scottish heritage because he would tell us all these stories about the knights and the armor and the swords and the battles and kings and queens and the cathedrals and all these amazing stories. And he took us around to show us all these old buildings and properties. And I was hooked. So was Jonathan. We were totally hooked on on this heritage. And so we wanted to collect swords. And so our, our dad said, we'll go back to Scotland in a few years. But you guys, if you want swords, you have to buy them yourself. I'm not just going to buy it for you. And so he really lit that fire under us to, if we want something, we have to earn it ourselves. And, uh, and so we were always looking, you know, whether it was, you know, getting the quarter from the shopping carts and, uh, in, in the parking lot, or whether it was, um, recycling bottles and getting the five cents. But what's so interesting to me is that that image of seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old doing these businesses like what's driving that? Is it, is it just the desire for these? swords as you're saying is, is it being modeled in some way or do you just think look we we must have been kind of come that way that we were just built to do this together you know like linda and i talk about this all the time and jonathan and i talk about this uh from time to time and and you know i don't know exactly what it was that clicked when i was a kid that made me obsessive over over that wanting the swords and whatnot and growing but even i remember as a kid when i would have at the, our bank we would have the little passbooks. And my dad would take us in every week and we would, any savings that we had, we could put it into the bank and then we would see on the passbook, the new line, how much we we had saved and how quickly that would start to grow. And there was something about that I can remember that I was addicted to seeing this money I was saving grow. I was a really good saver. I know a lot of kids spend, spend, spend. Jonathan and I both, we were really good at saving and it was growing fast and we were always finding new ways to make money to put into our accounts and grow. And you know, as a kid, I think part of it was the fascination with seeing more money in the in the bank. But then even more than that, I think for me, there is such an interest in seeing if I set my mind to something, I could make it happen, even when other people were saying you couldn't do it. It's interesting how you both of you had really parents that were entrepreneurial in their thinking and modeled that. And then, of course, from that, encouraged it in you. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I think growing up um, with 
my mom and dad's personalities. My mom was always a real outside the box thinker, very creative, um, always tackling something new and willing, willing to tackle or try something new and different. My dad's personality, he was more just get in there and do it. So whatever the idea was, I mean, he was always open to new ideas, new things, but he's like, he doesn't want to hear excuses, doesn't want you to take time, uh, too much time thinking about something, whatever it is, just get in and do it. And so I think the blend of their two personalities and their outlooks is what really shapes me. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Yes, because there's a, there's a culture that you were being, that you were born into. And, and at least as I hear the story, I think of that phrase, fish discover water last. It's like you were just in that culture. You you were just in an environment of, yes, you can try new things. And if you're going to try them, you better get on and do it. And so that combination, you just were being taught and demonstrated, why not? Go try it. You know, you're being literally told that, literally encouraged that that was just normal for you. Whereas, and I think for a lot of people, that is not the norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I remember as a kid too, you know, in school, our mom was always helping us with work projects for school and she always wanted us to get the best grades possible, but she wanted us to think creative creatively. So how can we get extra points? I can remember like in, you get your grades and you get your marks, but how can we get um, extra bonus marks and stuff like that? And she was all about it. And so she was always trying to get us to think up creative ways that we can pitch an extra assignment to the teacher. And I remember there's this course that she found you know the saying, where there's a will, there's a way? Well, there was an old course that was called Where There's a Will, There's an A. And it was sort of like a little a little test for you to be able to think outside the box to get better grades and really shape yourself and, and grow in school. And so she was all over that. And I remember we, Jonathan and I got to the point where we started, not even with our mom pushing us, we would start creating opportunities to pitch teachers. But me and my uh, minimalistic ways or, or uh, efficient ways I started pitching teachers in on assignments that I could use for multiple classes and multiple teachers. So for example, in French class, 
I was wanted to get my grade up from a B to an A. And so I pitched to the teacher. I'm like, hey, what about if I do this little play? I'll put on a play. I'll write a play. And it's going to be uh, Jonathan and me acting out a scene in French. It'll be all French, whatever. And she did it. But what I had also done is I pitched that to my theater class as a scene that I'm going to do. And I pitched it to a writing class because I was writing the script. And all of a sudden, I just cut my workload down by uh, a third because I was now using this for three different classes for grades. And so, yeah, I mean, my, right from Smart. the beginning, our parents were shaping us to really be thinking outside the box and always finding new ways to create a new Yes, path. there's a way of thinking there that you're describing a game that you were playing uh, of, of what if we put this together differently? Could we put the same amount of energy but get two, three times, ten times the results of what would normally be done? That, that's what I hear in that story. Yeah. And it, and that's honestly the way we are now in our lives and our businesses that we run. I mean, we're always, we're very efficient. That's one thing that um, our production or the, our network partners know of us is we can take a show that might typically take, you know, another production company, you know, a month to shoot. We could shoot it in maybe three weeks or two weeks and we can get more quality content and we can get all this engaging content and we can also do it at a better price point. And I think it's because Jonathan and I are always challenging ourselves to find ways to improve. We honestly feel that like we're lifelong students. I I don't think I'll ever master anything because I think I'm always wanting to learn how to improve. Give me a specific example of what you would do differently that cuts it from a month to three weeks or two weeks. You know, there, it's easy in production. If we're just talking about production, it's easy just to throw more bodies on a production site um, on, on a shoot to, to get more content. Um, or there's a, the order of how you shoot things could make you have extra days that you need to shoot to get it. But what we've been good at doing, because we'll, we'll have up to 39 houses at one time that we're doing 39 episodes at a time. And the way we shoot it, we layer our projects and our productions so that one, it's more cost effective for us overall as a company. We can also utilize, you know, we don't just do our shows. We also produce other shows with other talent, but we can utilize some of our resources across all of our shows, which again, helps us minimize the amount of time and cost. Mm -hmm. And so it's layering all these different aspects of of production that really brings us in sort of under what typical budgets might've been or timelines. Yeah. And I think in, in all of that, what you're really good at doing is delegating it or finding the right team members to oh, yeah. help carry it out. We, we have our team are the best of the best. I mean, they're amazing. We could not do what we do if it wasn't for them. And that was a hard thing for me to, to, to do earlier on as I started getting into my adult years, graduated high school, went to college. I am a perfectionist. I like everything being the best it can possibly be. And it was really hard uh, early on for me to let go of that control and trust that other people can also do a good job and they'll even bring some cool ideas to the table that I would have never thought of. Well, Linda, why did you point that out specifically? What is it that you observe that's made all of this possible? Um, I mean, we, we talk about it all the time where a lot of people look at the shows and think, wow, how do you guys do it? What they don't see is the immense amount of work and energy and effort and creativity in the teams that surround us that make it all possible. Like, yes, they are the faces of, of whatever product we're creating, but the machine runs because of all of the people part of it. And, and what Drew and Jonathan are great at doing is identifying those talented people, you know, who, who give themselves to a project so selflessly. But Property Brothers, that one show alone, Property Brothers Forever Home, that creates 
150 jobs between production and construction and our our team back in the office and edit post facilities. So when you think of the number of people, 150 people just for that one show, that is what makes it seem seamless. Um, there's no way we could do that on our own. But this has been a slow build to that. I mean, when we started at the beginning, we were a lot smaller company. I mean, in the very beginning, Jonathan and I would just make our own little projects and we would run and gun and do it all ourselves. Tell me about that very beginning part of it. Like, how did it begin? Well, so Jonathan and I both loving acting. So when we were clowns, way back to those clown days, we realized I, I did find it a little annoying to have to put on all that makeup mm -hmm. and, and the time we were spending doing that. And the fun for us, I loved being um, on stage. I loved entertaining, whether it was a birthday party or whether it was a parade, I loved being out there entertaining people. And then I got an itch for acting because my dad had taken me to a few two sets. You know, I think we went to one of the Rambo or uh, the first blood sets with Sylvester Stallone. And I went to a, a set that had John Travolta and Kirstie Alley for Look Who's Talking. And to see them acting on camera, I'm like, I, I love that. I could do that. I've done theater. Why could I not do this? And so as we got more into that passion, Jonathan got more into magic as his passion. Uh, totally random, but he, he's very, very good at it. And he loved that aspect of from a clown. We used to do magic tricks as a clowns. And so these passions, we realized, you know, we don't have any money. And if we wanted to make our own films or he wanted to tour with his magic, we needed to make some money somehow. And so that's where we started thinking about real estate as a way to fund our creative endeavors. And so in the beginning, what we would do is we would work a little bit and then we would make a short film or we would work a little bit. And then we'd write a script and then we just get something on camera. And the quality in the very beginning wasn't great, but at least we were creating and that was feeding something in us that was just growing this energy. And then 10 years actually went by and we had barely done any acting or magic. It was almost all just real estate. And that's when I actually went to go back into acting. I missed it. I wanted to audition more. But hold on, just to be clear. So for 10 years, you're not doing any Property Brothers stuff. You're just doing the property. You're actually just doing work in real estate. Is yeah, that correct? Well, at that point, there was no Property Brothers. You know, before all of the real estate, I was just wanting to be an actor. And that's all I was thinking about, just me, you know, having an agent. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I auditioned for a few things and I would wait to hear back. Didn't really book a lot, just some small things. And then as we got into real estate as a way to fund our creative endeavors, this is, you know, flipping houses, trying to make money off of flipping houses and doing the work ourselves. We learned to be handy. And our dad had taught us how to, you know, finish a basement and drywall and do tiling and all this stuff. Anyway, so then I did one commercial. I did a, a, a Toyota car commercial. I was a basketball player over those 10 years. That was the only thing. And so when I came back to Vancouver to do more acting, to follow my passion, I was networking. I had saved up some money from our real estate. Our company had done well and grown a little bit. And I, I was putting all that money over into networking, acting, workshops, everything I could think of to try and create opportunities, making my own short films, independent films, working on other indies. And I was quickly going through all of my savings and I had about 40 grand of savings and I went all through it. And then I, I realized without even checking in within less than a year, I had spent about $140,000. So I put myself into about $100,000 of debt trying to go after this passion of acting and creating my own films. And then that's when I had a, I stopped and I had a, a check in with myself and was saying like, what am I doing? This is a passion, but I'm not, I don't want to cripple myself and make myself go bankrupt. You're like, I need to go back to hangers. Exactly. <laughs>
where's that young seven or eight year old? <laughs> so I was only doing acting. I wasn't focusing on the real estate. And then I realized, well, what I need to do is I need to have that support net of the income that was great from real estate that can help me with this pursuit without crippling myself financially. And at that same time, I had actually started getting pitched as a host for a real estate show because they, I had all this real estate experience and I'd never thought about hosting. And so this was the very first time in my life where I was, I wasn't thinking about actor. I was pr- proposing, or I was proposed this idea of being a host and I had done stand up, sketch and improv. I was really good on the fly. I was good with improv and that really helps as a host. And so all of a sudden several production companies started pitching me for uh, host opportunities. And then I booked a gig uh, that was called Realtor Idol. It was basically American Idol for realtors. It was a terrible show idea. It didn't end up working out for me, um, but the production company liked me. They, they thought I had some great personality. I have this great experience. And at this point, though, when I'd come back to acting and uh, I started seeing myself more as a brand, um, as a brand and as a business, instead of just seeing myself as an actor waiting for an agent to call me for an, uh, for a gig. And I and think s- that's how you treat everything though. So, so not just when it comes to your, your TV personality brand, but I remember you talking about your real estate company. You know, it's, it's not just a real estate company that offers services. Like you are a brand and you guys always marketed it that way. Linda, tell me what's going on in your world while this is all happening. We know where it crescendos. We know that moment that you meet, but tell me what were you doing? I mean, I guess if we if we pick up where um, my parents influenced me as as a kid and as a teenager, my dad would always say, "Yeah, you have to get into business." And and I always thought, like, why why do I have to get into business? And and like you said, you know, the fish is always lost to discover water. I didn't realize that everything is business. I always thought, you know, why why do I want to get into that when I just want to be an artist or I just I just want to draw or design clothes all day. Um, so I, I kind of, uh, wanted to go against what my parents were doing. Not that they ever forced anything on us. Um, but yeah, I always thought business is so boring, not realizing that, you know, it, it's just a way of life. <laughs> it's funny that in your mind, the way it, it sounds is, is that business was just, a, it's, it's almost like a building. That, yeah, that's totally. business. You're going to go do yeah, business right. instead of anything is an aspect. Of exactly. Business. Yeah. And I, and I saw it as a dichotomy of like business and art, not knowing that anything you're passionate about could be a business. Um, but that's what you saw. You, you didn't see your parents from your description. Oh, this is what they were passionate about. They were, this is an opportunity and we're trying to make it and we need to make it uh, because we don't have something to fall back on and, so that's what business was. That's what you observed. That's what it seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely a necessity and not a passion, which is which is what I was always, what I am always, um, you know, searching for. What was your passion? What did you want to be at this point? Oh, geez. Um, let's see. Uh, this could take a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a flower shop owner, ice cream shop owner. Um, and again, see business, it's, all, it's still business. Shoemaker. Uh, shoemaker, fashion designer, uh, for, for two seconds, maybe I wanted to be an actor. Architect. Um, architect for two seconds, a forensic scientist. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and that's always been my mind. I've always just been the, you know, 
the, the butterfly or like the hippie of the family. You know, Linda never knows what she wants. She's a dreamer. You just have so many things that you want. Yeah. Um, and that's what I actually fell in love with is that Linda has such a positive outlook and she's a dreamer and nothing is impossible. Um, if you really just let your mind flow. I've always had the passion for it, but when I look at Drew and his passions and his drive to make it happen, uh, I think that's where we differ a lot because I will feel so many things and have so many passions, but I, I don't innately feel ready to or courageous enough to go out there and get it. And just make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Even now, what would you do if you could just do anything? If, there, if you didn't have to have it perfect, if you did, what would you do if you could do anything? Okay, that I know because we've talked about this. <laughs> so I would open up boutique hotels around the world that would have you know vernacular architecture, so that when you wake up in this hotel, you know where you are, um, and and you're a part of that community just by staying here. And that kind of stemmed out of our experience of traveling on the road so much and literally waking up. And I'm sure you have this too, not knowing what room we're in, what city we're in, and it's void of culture. Um, so yeah, my dream would to, would be to open up these boutique hotels that serve the existing community, not just tourists. And it would have a community garden, yoga studios, art studios, um, and it would give visitors a chance to experience the the local culture. We're trying to find ways mm -hmm. with the infrastructure of what we have where we can we're moving towards making that a reality because I think that would be amazing. Some yeah. sort of a a sustainable farm, mm -hmm. uh, a spot that is a, a draw, that's an attraction. We do events for the community, but it's also something great for tourists. But um, the one thing I find has been really interesting, the differences between Linda and my personalities um, with all of these sort of um, passions. So for example, when Linda has something that she loves, she dreams of something and, and, and she has all these ideas for it. Sometimes when something starts to come to fruition, and it starts to happen, there's a, you know, certain processes that need to be in place for it to happen. It becomes more of a business. <laughs> then she loses the drive and the passion for it because as a dream, it was amazing and whimsical and fun, but as a reality, it's a business and it's structured and structure is not as, as interesting. Whereas for me, I have a dream, a passion of something I push to make it happen. And when it starts to happen, that lights even more of a flame under me and I love it. And I love to see that thing grow. So it's, it's, it's always been this interesting dynamic. And I think it's why Linda and I actually work well together yeah. is because I can start to take those things and make it grow as long as I'm still keeping you passionate about yeah, your and, original ideas. And definitely that, that is why we work so well together. And, and yeah, I do have a love hate relationship with structure and I think I've learned, uh, how I feel about it more while in isolation. I think typically I would say that I don't like structure, but after the first couple of weeks, at home and I work from home a lot anyway. So I'm used to setting our own hours. Um, but I realized that I felt so directionless and that I, you know, we started making a schedule because I need structure to feel purposeful. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but in terms of, of our dynamic, I, I do love that when I have a dream or a passion, I do deliberately share it with, with you, Drew, because I know that, in your head, in, in your brain, as soon as I say what the idea is, you're already putting the pieces together uh, of the tools that we need to make it happen. It's actually very um, systematic for me. When she gives me an idea, I purposely don't tell her all the hard, tough things that we have to do behind <laughs> the scenes to make it a reality. 
and I try and handle all of that infrastructure and just keep it fun and entertaining no, on the on the surface. No, I, I don't need it always to be fun and light. I understand that you know yeah. business is not always fun, um, and that's not what I'm after. I I don't know what it is. I so I have a question for you, Linda. Is is it for you just that the structure of business itself is sort of boring, painful, whatever, or is it a, a neural association that business is what you observed when you were growing up? What do you think? I'm sure it's more of the, um, the, the latter. Um, but, but I think in addition to that, it's maybe my perspective of typical businesses where it's purely driven by profit. Uh, and that's what I don't want to get lost in. Even though I know that that is at the heart of business, it's it's hard for me to operate w- with that directive. You have an aversion to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have this uh, conversation all the time, whereas my outlook is if you have this thing that's a passion and it can start to drive revenue and grow, then that's more money and more, more um, strength that that passion has that can actually do good. Clearly, you don't have an aversion to that, right? Like from seven years old, you have you love that. Your association with earning money in a business is seeing it in your bank account. It's the fun of doing it. It's the family enjoying this possibility. For you, it is associated with it's all upside. That, that's, that's what I hear in that story. But for you, Linda, I hear it's almost like there was a sort of breaking point or a real like delineation where it was like not this like it's not i I don't hear in your story ingratitude uh like i'm not grateful for what my parents did it's just i i will not do this i am not going to do this with my life that's what i hear in your story yeah and and maybe that comes from the fact that a lot of our childhood growing up, our parents, because they had to, as you know, the immigrant mentality we were talking about, they had to work all the time. And um, we never faulted them for it or we, we never gave that a second thought. Um, but that was the reality of it. You know, they were always working. We were either at home by ourselves, which was, you know, great. Uh, it was fun for us. But um, I guess I just don't want to throw, not throw time away, but spend our entire lives, uh, working. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why when, when, and if we are spending all of our time working, I need it to be purpose-driven. Mm. You just said something that I thought was interesting. You created a visual of you being at home. Sounds like with your siblings while your parents are working in the business and again, it's not like that's some terrible memory, but there's a feeling about that memory that you say, that's not the life I want to create in my mm-hmm. future family. Yeah, definitely. We've talked about that too with, you know, Linda and I both, especially with what I do with hosting the shows and we're in different cities for long periods. Neither of us have this desire to be absentee parents. I, I mean, for us, family is everything. And I think that I can, I can totally see that. Mm-hmm when you reflect on this now with a sort of little perspective, what, what are your thoughts right now? I, I definitely think that's where part of the aversion comes from. Um, even though, you know, no 
ill will towards that parenting style or out of necessity. Uh, but, but it is definitely something that I'm grateful to have had that experience to know what I don't want to do. Do I want this belief, this idea, this decision, or can I, in an act of intergenerational uh, liberation, put this down, pass on this so that I can deal with it, handle it, and then grow into uh, a better version of myself. What, what's the endless dream that you could create together, you know, or, or, or separately and then complementary? I don't know, but like, what's the endless dream now? If we could be free of all of that, but recognize the power in this moment, this new freedom, what would you build? Would it be these hotels or would it be something? Is this, would it be the shoes? What would this impossible dream be for you now? My biggest dream would be, and, and to share this together, would be to create and sustain uh, a movement of kindness. And mm-hmm. that's it. I think what I love, Linda on the scale, a small scale of who we are with our family and our friends, she evokes this emotion in people of being, being a better person. She evokes kindness in people. And I think to be able to take that and elevate that to a grand scale. Um, so what, what I was going to say, different wording, but was um, I would love to create and sustain change. Whereas people are continually considering others, considering the planet, considering doing what is what they know in the deepest roots of who they are is right. Um, treating other people the way that people should be all be treated with respect uh, and and creating that positive change, I think, would be an amazing thing. And I think there is a path to us doing that. I, I hope in some way we're already doing that. It's uh, an interesting thing to try and think of what this concept in our heads right now of, of kindness could manifest into, could, could become, you know, the, the thing that, that you, you look at what Oprah's done and how she affects so many people in such a positive way. And she puts so many people first in many ways, but it's obviously her brand is a business too. And she's done such a great job growing in a way that gives her the strength to affect people across the world, uh, the globe. I mean, to me, I, what it looks like to me is that we could see like physically see more happiness in the world. We see more stories in the news or we see more um, moments of on social media being shared of positivity and people together. That's what I see. The opportunity I think you have is so great and so important. I mean, to me, this really matters cracking the code on this for the next 10 years. You know, not simply doing more of what's been done, however great that's been, however successful that story is, and books have been written and could be written about it, but to discover what could we do really? Um, I think the one thing that is a big difference is we have been, you know, we try to listen to our audience. We try to listen to what is important to them, what they would like to see, things that we see that we think could help um inspire them. And so the type of show, you know, Property Brothers 2 has had many iterations as well. Before it was people buying a house that we were renovating to help the family. And then we realized, well, there are a lot of families that already have a house that they might have inherited from their parents or the kids, 
you know, have grown up in the houses. They love their home, but it's not quite working for them. So we've been trying to see, well, how can we find a way to connect with these people who already own these houses? And that's what Property Brothers Forever Home became. I think for, for me, the most notable, notable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> notable uh, evolution I've observed is, you know, obviously when you're first starting out as a new face, a new brand, you don't really have much pull and, and you're at the mercy of the professionals, the experts already in in the field of TV and production. Now we've done a great job at building this brand and this platform. And now we have this say to, to mm-hmm. create media that can say something more than, you know, just design. We can talk about how design affects families. Well, and I think actually in that note too, we've really honed in more on family and the importance of what, how we can actually truly affect um, positive change in, in a family with what we do, whether it is the renovation, whether it's the peace of mind that um, a functional and beautiful home can bring to people. Um, Yeah. Not, not that the original iteration of, of the shows didn't, I mean, family was always, always at the heart of everything. I, I think now we are fortunate to be in a position where if we have a cause we're passionate about, we are able to creatively find a way to integrate it into whatever projects we're working on. It sounds like the shift has been, if I simplify it, from house to home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's house to home and home to lifestyle um, really is like that growth because there's so much more than just the structure. We, we've always defined the difference between house and home. A house, it's the studs, it's the windows and doors, it's the roof. But a home is where the heart is. A home is where there's an emotion and a connection that you have, that your family has, and that carries throughout your entire day. It affects you in your relationship, in your business life, in every aspect of your life. Yeah, I think that's a a clear distillation of, I guess, the meaning of what we do. And Andrew mentioned the podcast. the entire purpose of the podcast was to force us to slow down uh, and to have these conversations in a context that everyone is familiar with the home. Um, and we wanted to bring out certain concepts and values that st- should and could start at home, you know, important conversations mm. uh, that sh- need to be had um, whether it's regarding relationship or, or healthy eating or, but we want to make sure that, we are always putting ourselves out there in a way that truly feels right to us in that, in that way that we can um, affect positive reaction in anybody around us. I think you're right on target on like the very red hot center of what matters when you say it's about home and bringing somehow light into that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, you know, everybody deserves to love where they live. Everybody deserves to love the time they spend with their family and, and wherever that center point is for them, that their home, Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, you want to have that a home that evokes that emotion in you that does feel positive for your life. Yeah. In a way, what I want to do is sort of, sort of leave this on, on this, not, not the past, not that, not the sort of hundred years in the past, but into the future, which is your marriage and your life, your business can have such ramifications when you multiply it down generations. Uh, you know, these decisions, these decisions that 
have disproportionately affected your life and given you these opportunities, given this moment, uh, can be paid forward, not just for a year, not just for another show, not just the, but something very profound can change, I guess, in the business, but also in your own home environment. Uh, and, and I just wonder what is, uh, what is possible and what is in store as you go forward. And I think discovering that, really asking what's essential, what's the highest point of contribution, how can we create that kindness, you know, through that platform, what a difference this is going to make. Uh, to me, that matters. To me, uh, that is essential. And I think on that note, I will simply say, thank you for your time. Thank you for being so open. Thank you for talking, for challenging me, for teaching me and your example. And I think what we need to do is talk in five years to see if things did actually move in the direction we hoped and dreamed. But also oh, sooner than we'll that. We'll talk sooner than that too. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you're like I, I, I've had enough for five years, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I want to say a huge thank you to you because, you know, obviously I've told you this before, you're very inspiring for us to listen to your your thought process and, and everything that you've worked on throughout your life. It's very, I can see how you change people's lives in such a great way. And I, I, it excites me having this conversation because mm-hmm. I think this is helping us move in the direction we want to move. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for taking all this time to chat and for, for sharing your, your wisdom. And, um, yeah, it, it does really get me excited. I, I don't know at which points, but several points during our conversation, my hands were getting sweaty because I was getting, you know, excited for, for hearing this clarity you know, it, it did make me want to jump up and, and take action. And the other thing I got out of this chat is that I really need to work on my accents. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, I want to remind you, suggest to you to Share it with friends and family in a way that you can earn a reward. For the month of December, we will be launching a special referral program, as I mentioned at the beginning, that both you, your friends, colleagues, co-workers can benefit from. They have a chance to be introduced to the What's Essential podcast, and you get exclusive rewards for doing it. It's a good win-win. All the details can be found in the What's Essential podcast description. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, 
and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.